Hi, everyone. Thanks for tuning in to Strategies and Consequences and our first episode ever. And I can't wait to learn along with you all. So let's get into it as fast as we can. Let's get into today's episode on the Battle of Megiddo. The first recorded battle in history was the Battle of Megiddo, fought in 1456 BCE. It was fought between Pharaoh Tutmos III and Durusha, the king of the city of Kadesh. We'll go into some background right now so you can understand the lead up to the battle, the reasons why it was fought, and especially I really, I really want to get into the history of Egyptian civilization before this because it is pretty insane to look back and consider the fact that there was a civilization, albeit it was operating with Stone Age and Bronze Age technology until, let's say, 1200 BCE, uh, when the Iron Age roughly came into being. But the fact that they were able to build the Great Pyramids, create a functioning kingdom that was able to draw upon not just laborers from across a vast region, but also be able to feed them and educate them in the way that was proper for the time. So I'll explain to you. <laughs> Egyptian civilization was one of the first civilizations to emerge in the Nile River Delta. And this was before 12,000 BCE. And other early civilizations that you've probably learned about originated in these river deltas and river valleys because of the amount of fertile land and how easy it is to to grow and begin out agriculture uh, there. So you had Mesopotamia in between the Tigris and Euphrates, Euphrates rivers. You had the Nile River Delta. You had... Um, there's been some discussion about like... Uh, how early the, um, let's call it like early Chinese civilizations began, but they definitely predate many of, uh, even Mesopotamian civilizations in Egyptian. So upper and lower Egypt, let's continue. <laughs> upper and lower Egypt were united by Narmer or Menes in 3100 BCE. So that's the first recorded time period that we can point at and say, there was a united kingdom in Egypt. And Upper and Lower Egypt, um, it's a little counterintuitive. Upper Egypt is actually current-day Southern Egypt because it was higher up altitude-wise, and Lower Egypt was closer to the Nile River Delta. And from then on out, there was dynastic rule intermittently from about 2920 BCE until 332 BCE. While we could extend that um, until the Romans uh, finally defeat Cleopatra and take over under Augustus, I'm going to say that 332 BCE uh, is the end of the dynastic cycle because they stop worshipping traditional Egyptian gods at that point because 332 BCE is when Alexander the Great, the Greek Macedonian, conquered the area and introduced... Greek gods and um, Hellenistic uh, inf influences, excuse me, to the region. 
So there were three main dynastic kingdoms, the Old, the Middle, and the New Kingdoms. Getting back to what I said earlier, to understand how old the civilization is, consider that the oldest pyramid, Pharaoh Khufu's Great Pyramid, was completed after 10 to 20 years of work in 2560 BC. When Herodotus, the alleged father of history, which, um, as I'm gonna, what I'm about to say now, will call his credentials <laughs> into question. When he visited the site in, in the 400 BCE, those pyramids were already more than 2,000 years old. Consider that. We're living in 2020 now, and they, the pyramids that were built in the Old Kingdom, using Stone Age technology, which uh, essentially the, uh, the schematics that archaeologists have been able to draw up are that workers who were um, basically free from, uh, from farming because the, the harvest was still going to come, they were just sitting around essentially and they were conscripted by the Egyptian state to work on these massive projects. The, the pyramids, they're vanity projects for some pharaohs, but in general, their scope was, I'm building this pyramid for not just the legacy, but so that I can have the largest, essentially, funnel into the afterlife. So they can script all these workers, build massive pyramids leading up to uh, the base of the, the pyramids that they were constructing bring massive slabs um, of stone and marble it's truly remarkable and by the time that let's say uh, a Greek decided to start writing it down the Egyptians had already been writing on papyrus for a few thousand years remarkable so Egypt, Egypt only became an empire though as we could say it, it, like expanding beyond the original region of its cultural base where people were speaking ancient Egyptian and writing in hieroglyphics. I would say that that's, that's the region that you could say is the kingdom. And once it expanded beyond that, it was an imperial territory. So that was following the dissolution of the Middle Kingdom at the hand of the Hyksos. They were a group of settlers from the Levant, which is modern-day Israel, Egypt, Palestine, Syria, that part of the world, the lower part of the Fertile Crescent, you could say. So their hundred-year rule in Egypt brought um, the, invent the, the introduction of bows, chariots, and they revolutionized Egypt Egyptian culture. They definitely militarized it to a certain extent. So when they were ousted in 1550 BCE, uh, no pharaoh was going to let that happen again. It, it became less about a pharaoh doing these massive projects of the old kingdom. Their first concerns were to expand Egypt's, Egypt's borders and influence so that that kind of occupation would not occur again. So it began on a very militant footing. So let's get to the lead up to the battle. So Tutmosis III ruled, co-ruled with his aunt, Queen Hatshepsut. Hatshepsut. 
just so you know how Chepsut. Until he was tw- until he was twenty-one, she began expanding the Egyptian Empire into modern-day Syria, Israel, and Palestine, the Levant, as I'll refer to it from here on out. She began expanding it and expanded all the way to the banks of the Euphrates. Upon her death, though, uh, these far-flung regions began to revolt, and this was partially due to the rise of another empire, the, M- the Mitanni Empire. And this was it was centered in the northern part of the Tigris and Euphrates River uh, basin, and it was becoming. It, it saw this transition of power between a young Tutmosis III and Hatshepsut. They saw that it was going to be a messy transition, so they thought that they'd be able to swoop into the vacuum and begin forming their own tributary system. The way that early Egyptian control occurred was essentially it was very similar to the Chinese tributary system, where Egyptian forces would come into these cities, make a big hullabaloo, and say, "You must bow down to the the awesomeness, the power of the pharaoh." And send support, send tribute every year. And upon each pharaoh's death, they were expected to send tribute even more to ensure that there was a smooth transition and that they were still supporting the new pharaoh. But upon Queen Hatshepsut's death, some regions and city-states began to revolt because they had the backing of the Mitanni. So Kadesh and Tunib were two of these city-states. And they were, um, they were very close in proximity to the Mitanni, so they expected that they would be able to have swift military support if Tutmos decided to uh, advance on them. So they had the support of 330 Mitanni princes, and Tutmos didn't react the way they expected. He immediately, upon hearing the news of uh, his aunt's death and the uprisings, summoned 10,000 troops to reimpose control over the southern Levant. Think of it this way. 10,000 people suddenly whisked off from their farms, given axes, composite bows if they knew how to use them, and placed in chariots, but most were walking on foot. Unless you had prior experience in a chariot, unless you had been on prior campaigns, you were walking on foot. And Something that'll be a recurring theme is that Tutmos and many of the Egyptian pharaohs, they didn't exactly care how tired their soldiers got. They pushed them to march as fast as they could to get to the battlefield as quickly as possible. So he led these 10,000 troops and reaffirmed the support, let's put it that way, um, of Gaza and Joppa and made sure that they continued paying their tribute. So the ruler of Kadesh, King Dorusha, um, was obviously not going to just comply and continue paying his tribute. But when he began assembling his forces, he expected Tutmos to take easier routes to the city of Megiddo, where he was um, where he was camping out. Kadesh was farther north, and but he had decided to move his forces down, and hopefully, excuse me and hopefully hold off the attack from Tutmos. But Tutmos led his forces on a quick and far more dangerous route through a cliffside pass 
single file. So these soldiers are marching single file, quickly marching, and there's cliffs on either side of them. And this is because the pharaoh's like, we need to get to this battlefield as soon as possible. And something that we'll talk about later is a lot of the modern strategies about seizing the initiative, seizing the battlefield, seizing the high ground, drawing your enemy in, they're established in these early battles and established in these early campaigns, which is why it's necessary for us to understand and look back on the campaigns that these pharaohs undertook. So, by um, when they finally emerge from this cliffside pass, um, they completely catch Darusha and his forces by surprise. So instead of being able to choose the location of the battle, now he has to quickly scramble and get his forces into position when he still had basically had all his tents set up right outside of Megiddo. He was expecting a siege. He was expecting that Megiddo, which according to McDonough, had a had dug a well to make sure that they would be able to survive a long siege. Um, he was he was sure that like Tutmos would eventually give up and they'd just be able to expand their control from there. But no, by pushing his soldiers to march quickly, Tutmos ensured that he had the initiative. So, the battle was joined on the plain in front of the city of Megiddo. Um, what I want to bring bring into the forefront now is how while the foot soldiers were the essential part of Tutmos's army the hammer blow the crack forces the special forces in Egyptian warfare were the chariots they were introduced by the Hyksos as I said but they operated and evolved into something new once the Egyptians were able to adopt chariots into their army According to McDonough, Egyptian chariots were basically used less like skirmishers as they were used in, in the Levant and Turkey and Iraq, Sumer. They were used less like skirmishers that would shoot their arrows and throw javelins to disrupt the, excuse me, <laughs> I just had dinner, to disrupt the opposing, the opposing force. They were like tanks. The, let's put it this way, they weren't like the movies with swords on the ends of their wheels that would eventually come with the uh, the Persian Achaemenid Empire. But they would charge in and were organized in units of 50 chariots, which had six large wheels and carried multiple bow, bowmen. So they would mass in these 50 chariot units and charge at the enemy's lines, while these bowmen somehow had the ability to be firing rapid fire into the line to break up the line of the enemy because then that would allow the foot soldiers to come in and mop up and attack from there against a weakened force that had just been essentially blown into whatever formation they had, it was now blown to pieces once the Egyptian chariots arrived. So what Tutmos did was he had these forces in front and had them charge. And he led his forces, his foot soldiers, in a concave formation the middle of the unit is held a little farther back than the edges. This is frequently used, it's frequently used as a whole army. The whole army has its wings reinforced so that you can try and feign a retreat, let's say, 
bring your middle units and have them just retreat and draw the enemy in, draw the opposing force in, so that then your flanks can either hit them once they're in this pocket, or then um, have your middle the, the the middle force turn back and they're suddenly caught in the pocket. So this completely surrounded Dudosha's forces. But unfortunately, as often uh, happens when you can ensure proper communications between all of your forces, right when the Egyptian forces had engaged and beating Darusha and his forces, Tutmos lost control of them. His forces had seen the tents and had seen all of these, assume that Darusha had brought a whole train of his aides and his servants and they were trying to scramble and protect all of the treasure that he had brought with him. So of course the Egyptian soldiers see this and they're like, okay, we could keep doing this and keep attacking, but there's gold over there. They're gold and silver trinkets. Let's do this. So finally Tutmos has to rally his soldiers again and say, this, uh, that is not the priority. We can get those trinkets after we've won, won the battle and ensured their surrender. But by the time Tutmos gets that, the uh, the Kadesh forces had withdrawn inside of Megiddo. So Tutmos had to lay siege to the city. And that's the end of the battle. So Tutmos had to lay siege to the city for seven months. And finally, when that well ran out of its water and everyone was starving, they finally surrendered. Darusha fled and was able to rally his forces in Kadesh. So six years later, Tutmos finally arrived on his doorstep and attacked the city. And upon taking it and ensuring that Darusha was defeated, he could have declared victory. Like the Mitanni had already backed off from their support of the rebels. And now those rebels were, those rebel city-states were realigned within the Egyptian sphere, let's call it. But Tutmos realized that for the Mitanni to have done this, they realized that they could come back in the future. They, they, they hadn't exactly been harmed. There, there were 330 princes that were at the Battle of Megiddo, but the majority of them had been able to escape unscathed. So Tutmos pushed on a little longer. And he pushed the Mitanni Empire, which at that point had straddled both... Think of it like a... It's really... When you look at maps, which I'll provide on the website, strategiesconsequences.com, check it out. <laughs> it's really just a, a oval around the northern part of the Tigris and Euphrates. And he pushed the Mitanni Empire to the other bank of the Euphrates. So he held the western bank, they were forced to the eastern, and they lost a lot of territory. So they would eventually come back and be a thorn in Egypt's side, but at this point, like McDonough says, he's one of uh, my, um, one of the best sources for this, uh, for this battle. Um, the Egyptian Empire was at its apogee. It was at, quoting him directly, it was at its apogee. It was at the extent of its power. So, 
strategies, like I mentioned, uh, the concave formation to lure in enemies and hit them on the flanks, those are staples of military tactics that you can see if someone, if a general knew their history and understood that this was a way to draw in your enemies, it's been replicated. It was replicated, as we'll later talk about, by Hannibal at the famous Battle of Cannae and by other generals. And the powerful charge of the chariots has since been replicated by cavalry charges throughout the Middle Ages and with knights and also when you look at the Mongols and their feign retreats and their massive charges. But then it's also translated into modern day with jeeps and mass tanks. So you must always keep in mind though that these core strategies and tactics originated long ago. Tutmos III spent most of his reign at war and on the battlefield, and his successes and his title as the greatest warrior king in Egyptian history. And one of his descendants, Ramses II, who many claim was the true uh, most magnificent pharaoh, um, due to his own um, due to his own military actions and um, the arts projects that he did within Egypt, um, he was actually jealous of his ancestor. He was trying to create his, uh, recreate the success that Tutmose III had at Megiddo, so he fought another battle at Kadesh, roughly 200 years later. And this time, though, he fought against a better prepared and more innovative opponent in the Hittite Empire, centered in eastern Turkey. We'll talk about them next time. So... That was our first episode. Uh, thanks so much for listening, everyone. I hope you like listening to the episode and found it really interesting. Please let me know uh, with voice messages through Anchor or just comment on the website. I'll try and get back to you. Um, it's very fascinating to consider how far human history stretches back. Looking at researching the Great Pyramids and trying to put that into perspective and looking back at even before you had a dynastic system, there was civilization 14,000 years ago. How do we put that into the scope of history? Fascinating. Once you delve into this history, you'll start to discover that our mistakes are not new and that we may have a few things to learn by looking at the strategies and consequences of our past. I'm your host, George, and I'll talk to you next time. Thank you.